welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your host, Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we'll be reviewing the Codenames franchise, including Codenames, Codenames Deep Undercover, and Codenames Pictures. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, so I got a chance to play a game that I really, pretty much the first time I brought to table was uh, the other week, and that was Lords of Waterdeep. So... This is a game that's been sitting on my shelf for a long time. There's lots of those. It's got good company. Yeah, yeah, it does, unfortunately. We're working our way through them. Like slowly. A little slowly but surely, we're getting through them. We'll see if it outpaces the, the pace of my new acquisitions. Oh, it most certainly will not. But we'll make our way through it eventually. Exactly. So, I got to play it. It's a game based on the Lords of Waterdeep of Dungeons & Dragons. So Appropriate. Yeah. Pretty much. It's got a really interesting theme, and it was actually very different than what I expected. Mm -hmm. So, knowing that the Lords of Waterdeep are like this secret organization kind of thing, no one knows who they are, and things like that, I was expecting something where there are certain games like this where like you don't know where other people are moving and that kind of stuff, or... Do, is something in, the, in that direction? Sure, kind of like Nuns on the Run-esque. Yeah, something along those lines. That's what I was expecting, or some kind of thing in that vein. Turns out, it is a worker placement game. Pure and simple. Oh, okay. The significance of the Lords of Waterdeep is pretty much that they are your like endgame scoring conditions. Which, I mean, it's a good way of using it. It was just very different than what I was expecting. That being said, as a worker placement game, it's a good game. I definitely did enjoy it. It has some really cool aspects. We talked last week about New Bedford and even compared the two of them. And I think it very much stands because you have that aspect of worker placement, first of all. So you have your center board area where meeples are placed. You can only place one per most areas. Some of them can give you, you can place one or two more. But in general, it's just one, one action. So one person can use it and then no one else can. But you can also build buildings, which give you extra actions, and if they're used and they're your building, you get paid for it uh, through a different variety of things. You can get different cubes and other things like that. The main part of the game itself, and the main scoring mechanism, is quests. Sure, that makes sense, being a, a Dungeons & Dragons based game. Exactly, and so the resources that you're getting are the different fighters, rogues, clerics, wizards, and other things like that that you would expect to go on a quest. And once you have the sufficient number of each of the cubes, plus any money that you need to send them on the way, their way, they will go and complete the quest for you. And like in your name, you get those points. Some of the quests are plot quests, which I think is a really cool way of saying it, because the plot quests give you extra abilities. Plot quests can say, like, whenever you take a rogue, you get another rogue. Okay. Or something like that. Or whenever you take two, you get an extra one. And they really do help a lot. A lot of them are very low scoring in terms of points. Some of them are even zero points because they are so useful. So there was one that when I played, I got at the very beginning of the game, which gave me one extra uh, meeple for actions. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It gave me no points, but... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to. If it gives you one extra meeple, that's... Yeah, one extra meeple with everyone having, I believe, 
two at the beginning and then adding one more for three at the very end because you do unlock one meeple at a certain point in the game gotcha so but i mean you spend a significant portion of the game with 50 percent extra productivity that's that's a huge boon it was the first it was the first quest i took okay yeah no that's just on the verge of broken but it may not come up every time wow yeah okay that's impressive yeah it was very very close i think everyone was within within like two or three points of each other but i still lost right yeah there was though i think it was all three of us were within one very close to each other and the person who won was like just managed to somehow fly ahead sure like, yeah by like some, 20 points yeah yeah <laughs> there's always was, some sort of you know jank engine that you can build mm-hmm. and, and yeah. piece together but it's it's interesting to hear you say that it's sort of you know you build your stable of adventurers mm-hmm. almost your tavern oh see there you go perfect flavor darkest dungeon these games where you have a roster of of people then it's not quite like a final fantasy situation where you've got your characters and they're always the same but more like you've got a wide range of people and you can send them on various objectives so Mm -hmm. i i like that that's something that's kind of being factored into game design whether it's video or whether it's board because i find it personally very intriguing yeah i think that it is the theme itself is very shallow in general, because once you get to looking at it, it really is just a worker placement game. Sure, it's just a skin pasted uh, on. Yeah, it's just a skin. This could have any other skin. But I do appreciate it, because the game itself is done quite well, and I definitely enjoyed playing it. I'm really looking forward to trying it out with the Scoundrels of Skullport expansion, because I've heard that it takes the game from good to amazing. Okay. So when I get to that, I'll be sure to report back. <laughs> Very cool. But we actually just finished playing another game. We did. Another worker placement game, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a game called Shipyard. It takes place in the late 19th century. So like uh, 1870, I think, is when it's supposed to take place. Somewhere on the eastern seaboard of America. You play a shipping magnet. Uh, basically, you are in charge of a shipyard, hence the name. And you assign your workers to various places in order to acquire not only resources but also crew equipment and parts of your ship you literally assemble ships from you have a bow you have a stern and you can have any number of middle sections or i think up to probably seven but it's a lot you can have you know very very long ships you can have very short ships and Mm -hmm. it's interesting because you know there's very much the the action economy sort of traditional worker placement type of thing but then there are also other concerns that you have that come along with the physical building of the ships because some of your scoring conditions are based on um you know this is how many of this particular type of crew that you have or this is how many of this particular type of equipment that you have and so you can try to get a whole bunch of them on a single ship you know you can build one ship that's eight tiles long and have all of the equipment and all of the things on it or you can just churn out ships. The action that allows you to take parts of ships allows you to take up to three parts, which means if you want to, you can churn out a ship every single time you take that action by just boom, boom, boom. Granted, that's probably not a good idea because it requires equipment on it in order to move and to score points, but technically you can. So it 
it adds yet another layer of depth on top of the the action economy level that forms sort of the front of the game. Yeah, and it's actually quite different, I think, than many worker placement games that, that you get because a lot of times with worker placement ga- in games, you just get resources and use those resources to other things. And this, it just doesn't have that same feel to me, which actually when you said that it's a worker placement game, it took me a moment. It's like, yes, yes, it is a worker placement game, even though it didn't feel like it when I was playing. Well, and I suppose I should clarify, it's not exactly a worker placement game in the sense that you have meeples that you put on various tiles it's more of an action selection type game because you can only perform one action per round, but the action that you choose comes from a pool that other people are putting into as well. So there's some similarities. I'm not sure exactly what the type of game would be called, but there's a lot of you know strategic elements in which action you select. Yeah, no, I do think that it is pretty much a worker placement game. It's just very different than the ones that you think of like Brewcrafters or even Lords of Waterdeep where you know you have these certain actions that you know you have one round and then the end of the round that everything resets and then you keep going it really has a very unique feel with the way that the actions are both selected and used and how they don't refresh for another two turns and then when when they do then the person who used it that last time can't immediately use it again it has some very interesting mechanics in there there's a lot of mechanics and a There's, lot of pieces. Oh my gosh, so many pieces. It, it really is definitely a definition of a fiddly game, and ha- you need to have bags for this game. Yeah. It does not come with them, and you 100% need them in order for this not to be a one-hour setup, one-hour play game. Absolutely agree. But in general, a lot of the parts, I think, were really interesting and very innovative. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the action track is, is very innovative because you've got not only you know a selection of actions that you can choose from, but then each time you choose them, they advance around a ring. And so they form not just the actions, but also the turn timer. And I think that that's, that's really intriguing. But I am looking forward, you know, we played it just the two of us. I am looking forward to playing a, a larger game because in a larger game, I imagine the dynamics change, but you also have more turns. Each player that you add to the game increases the number of times that the actions have to go around the track by one. So I'd be interested to see how a a larger and longer game plays out. Yeah, I'm very curious because at the moment I felt like the game was too short. I felt like I ended the game during mid-game versus during end-game like strategy-type things. Yeah. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how it works with more people. Agreed. And that's a look at what we've been playing. Alright, here's your clue, Agent. Game one. Hmm. Ah! Code names! There you go. So let's go ahead and jump right into our review. The code names and code names pictures and code names deep undercover. Yep. So the whole code names franchise. Now, these three games, they run on just about the exact same mechanic. And the only thing different is the cards. So let's talk about the mechanic that they run on. So you start with a grid of pretty much cards. And the cards in Codenames and Codenames Deep Undercover are words. In Codenames Pictures, they are pictures. Surprise. Yeah, you couldn't tell that one. <laughs> in the first two games, you have a 5x5 five five grid, and you split everyone into two teams. The two teams are red and blue, and they are led each by a 
Spymaster. That Spymaster is in charge of giving clues to their team. So now the teams take turns. One team has the double agent and has one more word than, uh, than the other team because they start. The Spymasters look at their card, which is also a 5x5 five five grid with certain ones colored in to show which ones are the red, red words, which ones are the blue words, and which ones are the non-civilian words kind of thing, and then the one black assassin. They will then try to link as many of these words as possible together without giving, them, uh, giving their team clues to select either the assassin, the no team words, or the other team's words. Pretty simple. Right. It sounds straightforward enough. Give your team clues that get you their words and not your opponent's words. But that's where the catch comes in, and this is one of the most fun and core mechanics of the game. The clue is exactly two words. A word followed by a number. So, for example, if my team has the words moon and stars, then my clue could be night two. And my team would have to correctly guess that I meant moon and stars. However, if my opponent's team also had something like darkness, then my team could be baited into thinking, okay, maybe they didn't see stars, maybe they saw moon, and they were like, oh, nighttime is dark. They hit that, suddenly our turn's over, they can't guess anymore, and our opponents get a point. Yeah. So it's, you have to be very precise with the way that you give because things can change very, very quickly. Your team is only allowed to guess a number of cards in front of them equal to the number that you've given them plus one. It's a mechanic put in place to very uh, presciently prevent people from just going on a run and getting lucky and guessing all eight of their cards on the first turn. But it does highlight the fact that, you know, as much as you can try to give, you know, cautious clues, not give away too much, you also can't just give one number clues every single time because otherwise your opponent's going to catch up, they're going to surpass you, and they're going to take the lead, so... Yeah, exactly. And so the game itself is really cool from both sides because one side, you're the clue giver. You're trying to think of what clue can I get that that the other team, the other side will also get that will, you know, let them guess as many of the words as possible. So what association, like maybe if the two of us were playing together, we could probably do something to do with podcasting or something like that because, uh, you know, we would know that or have some kind of inside jokes versus me playing with someone who I don't know. I'll have to try to rely more on general knowledge or, God forbid, pop culture. <laughs> yeah, you'd be doomed. <laughs> I would be completely doomed if I was with someone who only relied on pop culture references. It would just not work. But... You know, you're trying to read almost your team as well because your only form of communication is that one word. You, the rest of the time, you have to keep your face stoic and not give anything away, not reach for the cards when they're like reaching to touch the thing or anything like that, and just wait for them to finish discussing, touch the card, and then you react whether or not it is correct or incorrect. Right. It takes a lot of discipline to be a spy master. It does, and there are definitely some people I've played with who literally has to turn around until they touch touch one of the things because otherwise they will be like you know oh no like you know their facial expressions will like drop if they're like going for the wrong wrong thing or anything like that and that is of course exacerbated by the fact that the other team 
It's just going to try to read into this as much as possible and give as many different things, shout out the different ones, like, you know, hey, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. And, and like some of them actually do make sense, whereas like there are a lot that are completely nonsense. <laughs> like, uh, what is it, knight, you said, or something like that. And they might say something like castle. <laughs> Which would make sense. That's true. That's, but uh, then they might also say orange. Right. Yeah. Or caterpillar. Caterpillars come out at night. There's yeah. a lot of that. There's yeah. a lot of um, yeah. a lot of goofiness involved in playing this game, which is good. I mean, it's very much a game that lends itself to that sort of goofiness and frivolity. Yeah, definitely. Though the rules themselves, like they definitely make it, give it that enough structure to not be something like you know, Cards Against Humanity or. You know any of these kinds of games where you, even though you're in, you're in a big group and you just like you know it doesn't matter what the rules are we'll just start doing this 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 something like that this one actually does have those rules in that structure which I think makes it even better right and I think one of the things about it that sort of helps to go along with that is that it is structured as two different teams you know you brought up the example of Cards Against Humanity and Cards Against Humanity is very much a game where you know one person is the the judge and that everyone else is just kind of doing the same action and once they've tossed their card in you know they can kind of not really pay attention for a while until the cards get read and oh if they didn't win you know there's very low involvement in a game until it gets back to your turn where you're the judge whereas something like codenames where you only have two teams and the the turns swap back and forth pretty quickly you you pretty much have to be engaged the whole time um and and there's really no there's no reason not to be you know there's no time for you to get bored because in 30 seconds it's your turn again not only that, but also you should be paying attention to what the clues are for the other team. Right. Because if, say, there's a certain clue that the other team gave and that you're like, they missed or something like that, that's obviously one card that you see and your team gets like, you know, the clue and you're just like, wait a minute, that card I think is very much for the other team, so let's maybe not choose that one. And like, so there's that extra level of you always want to be engaged yeah. in, in the game itself. And because the turns are so fast, it definitely lends itself to that. Mm -hmm. So that's most of the base game. And then we mentioned the, the sort of non-aligned cards. You've got the neutral cards, which, you know, they're just bystanders. And uh, side note, one of the great things about the game, actually, is its art. Uh, it's very almost Archer style of art. So you've got, you know, the secret agents are all very fantastically attractive people. And they've got their guns up and their shades on and all this stuff. And then the... the the neutrals are just like schlubs. It's just like a dude with a pizza stain on his shirt or like a ditzy girl at the mall or, you know, just randos that show up. I think one is a dog. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is, yeah. Um, right, but so you've got the neutrals, and if you guess one of them accidentally, no harm, no foul, your turn's over, but that's the end of it. And then there's one assassin. So yep. there's a 4% chance each time you're picking that you're going to have the assassin. And if you guess the assassin, the game just ends instantly. Your team loses. Yep. So... If you're the clue giver, if the, the spy master, it's very, very important to think not only about, okay, what words can I give that are my team's words, but also what aren't my, my opposing team's words, and even more importantly, what aren't the assassin. Yep, exactly. That's the biggest thing. You have to be like... Uh, think of your perfect clue and then you look over and you, you check that uh, it's not the assassin. It's like, that would work perfectly for the assassin. Right. I cannot give this clue, even though it connects the other five of my words perfectly and I could win. 
but they would choose this one first and then I would lose. Yeah. So you got to be really careful. Yep. And it really shows how people think very differently, which is one of the things that I really like because I'll say something and thinking like one thing, I think um, there was something I think I may have, may have said like button or like press or something like that. It, it was, I think I said press and then... Uh, I remember this because yeah. it was me on your team. <laughs> yep. I said press and the, the word was supposed to be buttons. I think you guys finally chose like pants or iron right. or something right. like that. Because we all, yeah, I think there were two or three of us on your team at that point and we were thinking, okay, what do you like... You press like steam or iron that sort of thing mm-hmm. so we were thinking okay pants i think i think there was one that actually basically resembled an iron yeah because uh, we were playing with pictures in that mm-hmm. particular one and then you at the end of the game we we lost i believe you you were like it's button it was button <laughs> ah but so you you really have to be on the same wavelength as your team but sometimes that's not always easy you know yeah. you can you, even if you're totally tracking with each other in terms of the the references that you get, the types of jokes you like, the those sorts of things. Sometimes it's just my mind is one place right now and yours is in a completely different place. And that's one of, I think, really the clever things about the game is the way that you can sort of play off the double meanings of, of either the clue word or the, the card word. Yeah, and that brings us to Codenames Deep Undercover. Yes. So Double entendres abound. I don't know. There are probably quadruple entendres there, even if I don't know what the hell that means. Sure. Although, I don't know. There's a lot of single entendres, too. Some of them are just like, boobs. Yeah. What do you do with this? Exactly. But this is, of course, one that you should not play with anyone who you don't think is mature enough to handle boob jokes, or at least to a degree. Yeah. Don't play with your parents. Don't play with your parents. Don't play with your five-year-old cousin. Um, No. So... It has the abundance of just about every single kind of word for every body part that you can think of. I don't think that they actually have curses in there that I know of. Nothing. I, I think they avoid... I think it's like the, the TV rule. I think they avoid the F word and the S word. Yeah. But everything else is fair game. Because I, mm-hmm. I seem to remember ass. Mm-hmm. I think I remember damn. Yeah. So it was just that kind of stuff. And it actually makes the game harder. Oh, yeah. Because there are so many double entendres. So you have to be really, really careful about how you phrase it. Because whereas codenames regularly, like most of the things are completely unconnected and you have no idea how to connect them. Codenames Deep Undercover almost has the opposite problem where too many things are connected. And you have to figure out a way or a way to say something in order to not connect everything. Because... You know you're connecting to the SS and you know you're connecting to their cards or anything like that. So you have to like try to find that specific word that connotes one thing but not this other thing. Right. If accidentally giving your op- or giving your team a clue for your opponent's words or for the assassin is a possibility in the base game, it's almost a guarantee in Deep Undercover, uh, which just makes the game a lot more, not more difficult necessarily, just different. You have to have different considerations in mind, which for us, after having played literally dozens of the base game, you know, we come at it with a very specific mindset. And to try to bring that same mindset, we run into a wall because, oh crap, I'm not thinking about this the right way. Everything means the same thing. They're going to guess the assassin. Oh no! Exactly, exactly. And I think that it really does give give you a lot more mental gymnastics there. And I think one of the the most like interesting experiences that we've had so far 
is playing this with someone who did not speak English as a first language. <laughs> yeah, that was that was interesting. I think I've done that at least no twice now because I, I played it with uh, over Thanksgiving right. uh, with one of our friends from China, and then with one of our friends from Brazil uh, about a week or two ago. And same thing. It was the kind of thing where you're just like. I wonder if he will get this double entendre. Like, you know, (laughs) does he know what this means or something like that? And it it really does add to it and also gives them quite a learning experience. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, But then there's also pictures. Yes. Which is certainly the most unique of the three, um, Mm -hmm. just because they're pictures, obviously, instead of words. And they're nothing like what I expected. I expected going into the box for it to be like, basically just pictures of the same sorts of words that you would find mm-hmm. on a, a regular game card you know dog or baseball mm-hmm. or that sort of thing but they are totally off the wall they're headphones with the, with halves of oranges as as the cops or something like right that. they they went absolutely 100 percent surrealism for all of the pictures on though, these cards i will say though that I was actually expecting them to go a step further because of the fact that this whole variant of Codenames actually came about from people taking Mysterium and Dixit cards and playing Codenames with those. So because I knew that backstory, I was expecting the cards to be full color, like complete Mysterium, like surrealist pictures. But they toned that down a lot. They instead have... Black and white pictures, which is actually really cool because that means that no colorblind problem. Right, yeah. Um, and the, similarly, the red and blue team uh, agent cards, yeah. they're completely distinctive. They have different yeah. agents yeah. on each side. So Exactly. But for pictures, they have like black and white pictures. They're pretty surreal. And they're also limited, which I think actually makes a lot of sense because with the Mysterium cards, for example, you would probably be able to match, have the same problem as you would in Codenames Deep Undercover. Yeah. Because you would be able to match anything to anything. And also the colors can be that gray area where, you know, can you give someone the clue that says the color? Because like, you're not allowed to actually give a clue that says, like, bees or something like that, which means that they all start with B. Right. So you can't have the like, structure of the word as the clue, like nouns or something like that. But you you have to use the meaning of the word, and and that could be a very blurry line if you were to uh, actually have the full colored pictures like you would with um, Mysterium or Dixon. Totally true. But all in all, I think pictures is a great addition to the the franchise. I think it's a lot of fun, and it's it preserves sort of the the fun, unique aspects of the core game while also making it pretty radically different in ways that are are quite fun and quite compelling yeah and some of the differences actually first of all you have a different size board true you actually make the board a little bit smaller which uh, i think is probably makes a lot of sense just because it could be a little bit too difficult with that many cards and also size wise but you can also combine the code names pictures with the other code names that's right you mentioned that I haven't been part of one of those games, but you did mention that it could happen, and that would be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, I, I played it, I believe, once, and it is very interesting and very well done. I think that it definitely works and gives you that interesting feel for the game itself. But no game is perfect. That's right. Codeams is pretty close, um, and I think we both agree that for a game that's really this simple, there's less that can go wrong. You know, there's really only one 
kind of driving mechanic at the core of the game, and so there's less that can go wrong. But there are a few things that we we uh, noticed. One thing, and this is something that we mentioned last week in New Bedford as well, expansion symbols would be great. Obviously, the pictures are easy enough to sort out on their own, but, you know, Deep Undercover and the base game, or if they ever release other sort of theme packs, it would really be nice just to have a little, you know, icon, tiny little thumbprint down in the corner that says, hey, this is the game that this goes with. If you put them together, you can separate them out pretty easily. Exactly, and they are separate games, and so they're not... I guess, technically expansions, but I still think that that would be really useful because I think it would would be fun to add that little bit of a uh, different flair to regular code names versus keeping them separate. I think that especially for our group of friends, that would be a lot of fun, but I would have to be able to take them apart because I do play this with my parents or other people. Right, exactly. For the the game that has this sort of content, Mm -hmm. you, you definitely want to be able to filter those cards out very easily. Exactly. So the other thing that I want to talk about is the timer itself. Uh, so they do add a timer, and you'll notice that we haven't talked about it. <laughs> and that is because it really is completely extraneous. I yeah. think that the game almost like went halfway in on it, because if you had a specific strict timer, that would be one thing. But leaving the timer at the... Uh, pretty much at the mercy of the other team is not the best idea. I mean, most of the time it is very friendly, and I really haven't seen it used to any kind of effect. And it's always just like, oh, I'm going to flip this timer on you. You only have this much time left. And it's like done like right as soon as the turn flips or something like that. And it just, there's never been a situation that I felt needed this timer. Right. I think, I mean, I understand the purpose of the timer because obviously you don't want either team to take forever with their turn but i think the only times that we've ever quote unquote used the timer were when we just kind of pointed to it as a way to remind the other team that they were taking too long which is a function that could be fulfilled perfectly easily by just saying hey you guys are taking too long and i really don't think they needed to include the timer which means they could have packaged it in a much smaller box a box that fits the cards themselves a lot better. And I think taking it out would just do a lot for them in terms of streamlining and production. I agree completely. So, that being said, what do you rate this game? Buy it. I absolutely think buy it. I've played it, like I said, literally dozens of times, probably scores of times. My friends own it. My parents own it, um, which is fantastic. We've played it on family vacations, and I think it's just really accessible for a lot of people and also lots of fun. It's absolutely worth picking up. I completely agree. I'm going to echo that by it. I'm actually going to go one step further and put it on my top shelf. Ding, 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 ding. Because I think that this is a game that if you are a gamer and you have anyone in your friend group who is not a gamer, this is the game that you can get them to play. Agreed. Like, my parents are not gamers. They will play this game. I have a lot of people that have started playing with this game. I love bringing this out whenever I have a larger group setting that that really needs like a kind of intro level game because this is one that I can enjoy just as much as they can and you can't say that with all intro level games and uh, so definitely buy it put it on your bookshelf and you will not regret it absolutely not so real quick to wrap up the review some games that we think are pretty similar to 
codenames. Mysterium, obviously, we've mentioned it several times throughout this review. Mysterium is very similar in that the person giving the clues has to be in a sort of nonverbal way, very much on the same wavelength as the people receiving the clues. You have to be able to play off your understanding of how they think, their understanding of how you work, um, and it's very much about knowing your partner and trusting your partner. Exactly. Another game that uh, I would compare this to is Spyfall. So Spyfall, unlike Mysterium, is not a cooperative game, but you are actually working together with most of the other people, but you don't know who you're working against. And that's <laughs> the thing that you're trying to figure out. And therefore, like you have to really be careful about what questions you ask. So you have to ask questions of, of another person in the group trying to both show that you know where where you are and figure out whether or not that they know where they are without or without letting them figure out where the location is. So you have to choose your words very, very carefully. And this is another time that you could use the double entendre or double meaning words to a really great effect. And I think that it's a really good other kind of like word choice kind of game. Right. And then finally, another sort of word choice game, Nitwit. We both agree both games, both Nitwit and Codenames, really rely on precision in terms of how you associate the words with one another. They're very different gameplay-wise, but if you like that sort of word association and kind of a game that allows you to flex your mental thesaurus, Nitwit and Codenames are both going to fill that niche very well. I agree completely. And there you have it. We hope that you enjoyed our review of Codenames. joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. Please check out our YouTube channel for the podcasts in video form as well as our upcoming Century in Review. Be sure to join us next week for our review of Flip City.